Hey everyone, you are listening to The Youth Vote, where we explore the different ways young people interact with politics. I'm Isaac Goff Mitchell. Today on the show, we spoke with Dr. John Grinspan, the curator of political history at the National Museum of American History, which is a Smithsonian institution. Dr. Grinspan is the author of The Virgin Boat, How Young Americans Made Democracy Social, Politics Personal, and Voting Popular in the 19th Century. This historical perspective was fascinating, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Additionally, I want to let you know a couple ways you can help out the youth vote. First off, you can leave us good reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us show up in other people's feeds. Additionally, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at theyouthvote1, or you can subscribe to our new Patreon linked below, which is where you can get bonus content and help out the show. With that, I hope you enjoy this episode, so stay tuned. All right, so before I ask you any questions, could you just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about the work that you do? My name is John Grinspan. I'm curator of political history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And I, I kind of do two things. On the one hand, I go to contemporary political events to collect objects for the museum to kind of tell this history of our moment to the future. And at the same time, I'm our curator of politics in the 1800s and early 1900s and try to understand how the deep history of our democracy, how, how politics were kind of on the ground in people's lives in the 19th century. And I kind of time travel back and forth between the two of those. So I'm happy to, and I also, I published a book on the youth vote and I'm publishing another book soon on anger at democracy. So it's, uh, I try to get at these, these topics that it seems like you're interested in. Yeah, no, that's definitely what we're interested in. Um, something I wanted to ask you about first to kind of get things started is that there seems to be a popular narrative today about young people. And the idea is that young people are lazy or uninterested or not politically motivated. And so just off the bat, can you address if this has always been the perception of young people in America or is this a new phenomenon? It, it's It's been the attitude since 1900 or so. I mean, there, there's a line through all of American history or through all history, which is kind of dismissive of young people. But really in the, in the 1800s, young people are often criticized for being too involved and too active and too uh, like adamant about politics, either as, as too involved and, and ignorant because they're, they're young and obviously not to know anything or too involved in a force, dangerous force. But for the last hundred years, people have been saying young people don't care. I think all the evidence lately is to the contrary. I think young people today care so much clearly like just in a statistically verifiable way are more involved and active in politics than their parents or their grandparents probably were if they're you know gen xers or baby boomers so i we, this is not a good time to be shaking your fist at the young people when you're from i don't know if you're 50 or you're 65 your generation participated less than millennials or gen zers do so i i'd say it's unfair and you know it fluctuates over our history sure yeah and so looking at that historical lens looking at how you said there was a time period where people said oh my god young people are too involved or or, or that kind of thing uh-huh. what did that involvement look like and what I mean by that is was it just voting in large numbers or was it also activism and running for office and and those types of like hands-on involvement yeah well as you know um 
campaigners on the ground are often young people. They're often kind of the foot soldiers of, of political campaigns. They're cheap, they're energetic. They, uh, they do what you tell them to often. Uh, so like there, there's a benefit just throughout history of running campaigns through young people. In the 1800s, there's this kind of combination of needs. On the one hand, political parties need labor. Like there's no TV. They have this new thing called democracy. There's no TV, there's no, there's no radio. Like if you wanna run a campaign, it takes a lot of boots on the ground talking to people in saloons or on streetcars, handing out ballots. It's a lot of labor and young people are excited and willing to do that labor. So politicians reach out to bring young people into the system, even people who are too young to vote, even people, the voting age back then is 21. People often spent 10 years participating in the different levels of campaigns before they could ever vote. And some people, you know, women, African-Americans in some places who will never get the right to vote still participate in campaigns. So, so parties reach out, try to bring in young people Lincoln said the way you build a campaign is you get the, the shrewd wild boys about town just under age. So get like the troublemaking 18 year olds in your town and they're there who you want to run your campaign or, or do the labor of your campaign. On the other hand, young people have a need. They're living in this really kind of shaken, unstable world. It's hard to become an adult. It's hard to become successful. And politics offers them a lot of kind of personal connection and advancement. So there's this politicians need young people, young people need politics and they, throughout the 1800s kind of benefit each other. And so you talked about the idea of the social benefit. And I know I read some of your articles. Um, I have your book on the way now. Uh, I haven't <laughs> read it yet, though. Uh, uh -huh. But so I started kind of reading those articles. And you talked about the social uh -huh. advantages to getting involved in politics. Are there uh -huh. other larger issues that kind of motivated young people to get involved in politics? Like today, it seems like it's climate change, racial injustice and economic inequality. What were the issues at that time that were getting young people fired up? I think that's a great question. And it's kind of a two-part question. The one thing is what were the issues? And the other is like, do people participate because of issues or big structural issues or personal kind of interest and, and need? Um, and I go back and forth, but the issues that you're kind of like the, the big fights of the era, certainly there's race as a big fight, race and slavery, ethnicity. I mean, America is filling up with different uh, immigrant populations and they don't all get along. Religion is key. There's a big Catholic Protestant divide in America at the time and uh, religion plays a key role in politics, but also issues like income inequality, the money supply. We don't think of money as an issue, but this is an era before the Federal Reserve System and money is a political issue all the time. Banks, immigration is a huge issue. Um, gender comes up. Basically everything we fight about today has some kind of permutation or equivalent in the 19th century. Now the battle lines might be totally different, but, but they're, they're fighting over race and class and gender and equality, not directly about the environment, but, but indirectly about the environment and infrastructure. They, they're building this country. There, there aren't not many roads. Every railroad has to be built. If you wanna you know, sell wheat that you grew in Colorado and New York, you need railroads and steamboats and all these things. So they, they're building this country and they're fighting about it the whole way. So yeah, every, all those issues from, from slavery to, to railroads. And so I guess I'm curious too, um, I know that of a common feeling, so like I told you, I've interviewed, I think 40 or 50 different people under the age of 30 for this podcast who are involved uh -huh. in politics. Uh -huh. And a common theme is this idea of feeling dismissed or, or powerless. Is it true to say that young people had more of an impact at this time? Like, were they yeah. successful or were they kind of shouting at the sky? Yeah, that's a great question. Because like, 
on the one hand, they're doing a lot, right? They're a huge influence. They're, they're deeply crucial to how you run campaign. But in addition to like this kind of dismissive, dismissal of young people that's always been around, this is an era that believes in hierarchy. Like they, all our, all our views about trying to make people more equal are, are, are diminished back then. So yeah, they're, they're not getting all that much out of it because one, even the adults who are getting elected because of their labor don't really want to know what they think. You know, they want them to hand out ballots or, or throw bricks or pour whiskey. They don't want them to, to you know, come up with policy and platforms. Um, and, and then the parties aren't really helping people all that much back then. They're like, this is before the social safety network. Like the, neither party is going to do much for you really in your life. I mean, they're, they're exceptions. If you are an African-American enslaved person and there's a party that's fighting for abolition, that's going to make a big impact in your life. But most of these people aren't getting concrete benefits from the party. So it's just a little more indirect. And also they're not identifying as young people who need to work together to benefit their generation. They're often identifying as young people who are in competition with other young people and they individually want to succeed. So there's the, the view you're talking about that you're probably hearing from people who are Gen Z and, and kind of young millennials today, like solidarity just doesn't exist as much until like 1900 or so. Interesting. And then I guess one last question on this topic, uh, moving forward in history a little bit to that 1900 era where you said there was then a decline in the involvement. Is there something that happened or is it just, <laughs> did it fizzle out? I mean, I, I know that's such probably a, you could go on about that for like a long time, but I just, it's so interesting to me to think that there was once a time where young people were heavily involved and then they weren't, and maybe now they're getting back involved. What, what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I'll try to try to answer it quickly. Um, first turnout crashes turnout in the 19th century in the 1800s is like 70, 80% of eligible voters are going to the polls and the people who can't vote in their communities are still paying attention. Right. So people are really engaged in politics. There's a deliberate effort around 1900 to kind of calm down American democracy, to make it less central, less social, kind of separate it from the rest of society in a way. They really want lower turnout, honestly. They talk about the right not to vote. And by calming down politics, especially by calming down public politics, there's not that need for the young canvassers and, and ballot handers out or and marchers. Like they just don't reach out to young people as much. At the same time, young people have other structures in their life. And around 1900, you know, there's a better system of high school, there's athletics, there's movies, there's the Boy Scouts. There's like a whole, there are a lot of options for entertainment and connections for young people that didn't exist that kind of pull them away. And then the third thing, and this is a mistake I think parties still make today, is around 1900, a little earlier, the parties start separating young people from other populations. And they say, here's our young voter club, here's a young Democratic club, here's a young Republican club. And by separate, here's our people who are too young to vote club. Here's our first time voter club. And by separating out youth from the rest of the population, young people don't have the promise of adulthood and connection. They, they get stuck at the kids table almost. Like young people often want to participate in politics to feel significant and to, to feel like, like they're playing a role in society. And if you push them over in the corner in their own separate clubs, their turnout and their engagement just crashes historically. And, and I think today too, I, I wonder if you've found similar things in your conversation. Yeah, I, there's definitely a lot of things happening today where uh, young people are kind of almost like excluded because they're young people and then they're, they're like patted on the head. Like it's very impressive that you're involved, but like you sit over here and then the adults are over here. That kind of thing is definitely still happening.
Yeah, but you know what? If you go to the campaign headquarters, it's college students and 18 year olds who are like making the posters and everything. It's young people and very old people run run campaigns on the ground even today when they're kind of dismissed. But thanks. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, one thing I, I, I meant to ask earlier, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, is, is something I was a little curious about is uh, how accurate is the idea that these young people were primarily young men and boys? Um, or is it true that there were women and, and girls who were playing a large role in the youth political kind of involvement of the 19th century? Yeah, it's, well, I'd say with a caveat, it's true. Like this, this is a sexist time in politics. There's no denying that and I wouldn't want to misrepresent it. But even at a time when women don't have the right to vote and aren't seen as equal citizens, they're still finding huge ways to make their voices heard. They're still reading the partisan newspapers and arguing the issues with family members and with strangers. They're, they're turning out at rallies and marching. They're, um, they're often refusing marriage proposals from men from the wrong party that like people, it's almost like to me, the speed limit, just because you have the legal speed limit of 50 miles an hour doesn't mean anyone does this thing that's not legal which, or, or drive over 50 miles an hour just because women can't vote doesn't mean they're not finding all sorts of ways to engage and participate. But that, that line of not being able to vote is, is hugely significant. One interesting thing is young women, women who are too young to vote seem more engaged because they haven't kind of hit that wall of disenfranchisement. They haven't, if you're under 21, there are lots of young women who write in their diaries about elections and turn out because they, they haven't been told that kind of, no, you're not a, a voter yet. And when they get to 21, it, it, it does turn off their engagement a little bit. But there, if you go through the diaries of 16-year-old girls or 18-year-old women in, in, in the 19th century, you find tons of politics and, and issues and partisanship and all that. Yeah, that's just interesting. And it's something that, again, I, I always try to at least just think about is the idea of like, how do people who are pushed to the fringe stay involved kind of against the odds? And that's really interesting. You talked about that. Yeah. Yeah, they find a way. I mean, that what is also true, though, for all that said is voting for a young man is a sign of masculinity in that age. When a young man casts his first vote, it's called his virgin vote. And it's like his introduction into being a man. And he's supposed to stick with the party that he lost his political virginity to for the rest of his life. Like they are tying up voting and manhood in really key ways. But even for all those kind of sexist cultural things, there's still a ton of involvement by people who are being, who are being excluded. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I feel like the idea of the first vote is not nearly as as important nowadays. I don't know if that's if that'd be backed by any sort of actual analysis, but I don't remember it being a big deal. Yeah, I do notice if you talk with people from any era, they can usually tell you who the first person they voted for was. When they might they might not be able to tell you the first album they bought or this or that. They usually, if you find people of any generation who who participate and ask them who they voted for. They get a look in their eye and start telling you about voting for, I don't know, LBJ or, or whomever it was. Uh, so it does matter to people. We just haven't like built it up as a culture and rewarded it the way they did back then. I mean, back then it was like a rite of passage and now it's like a thing you do, which maybe you remember kind of. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think my first, my first vote was the most millennial thing. I voted Bernie Sanders for my first vote ever. So it's the, <laughs> the kind of millennial rite of passage. Pivoting a little bit, in one of your articles, you talked about three principles that led to um, young people being more heavily involved in the 19th century. Uh -huh. And uh, those were democracy is social, uh, 
uh-huh. focus on sustainability, not disruption. And then the political is personal. Yeah. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about those because I found those really interesting. Um, you're gonna have to remind me. So democracy is social was the first one. Um, yes, democracy is social was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's when we look at at political science data today on what gets people to turn out, the best thing, the biggest impact is a conversation with another human being, right? It's so much more than advertising or, or social media. Like the, it's the most expensive thing, which is why parties don't do it all that often, but human interaction drives engagement in politics. And we're not voters in a vacuum. We don't kind of come up with our ideas on our own. We know that our, our tribes, you know, all, all our backgrounds, our, our, our race, our ethnicity, our age, our, our class, our, all these things inform our political choices and our political participation. So kind of acknowledging how social that is is a way to get people to vote more. And in the 19th century, they were really good at kind of pushing all those buttons, saying, go vote, not just because you care about X issue or Y issue, but because your older brother is doing it and your uncle is doing it and you need to defend your community. And they, they were really good at reminding people how social democracy is. Uh, the second one was uh, sustainability, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago when I wrote that disruption was a little bit more of a buzzword, but there was this idea there's always this idea that the new generation of young people is going to rise up and change everything. And it's really idealistic and optimistic. But if, you, if you're really looking at long-term engagement, sustainability is so much better. I mean, we've seen in our own era, people who turn out in huge numbers for one presidential election and then don't turn out for the congressional election two years later, and how that can, you know, you, you kind of saw that with, with Obama supporting Democrats in 2008 and 2010. Um, we can see the harm that, that our uneven engagement does. If we just focus on sustainable engagement, turnout, turnout in every two years, every local election is so much more significant than that like one big wave election that's gonna change everything. That's just not, the, the structure of our democracy is so layered with so many checks and balances that it requires sustainable engagement, not just that one big dramatic romantic moment. Um, what was the third one? <laughs> Yeah, so the third one was this idea of the political is personal. Yeah, and this kind of gets back to what we're talking about. Do people vote because they care about big issues of governance or do people vote because they want to be a voter? You know, do they want to, I I can't say today, my expertise is not, it's just anecdotal on what people do today. But in the 19th century, there were people who cared about slavery or banks or immigration or infrastructure, but they all cared about making a statement about themselves. The men who could vote, the women who couldn't, the people who are fighting for the right to vote, they're all making a personal announcement about their engagement in politics. It's not just about these big issues, but they're saying, I, Joe Smith or whatever, am a citizen of this democracy and I'm making my voice heard. Uh, and I think playing on that today is really important. You're, people who are voting for Bernie Sanders aren't just trying to get Bernie Sanders in office, they're trying to tell the world they're Bernie Sanders supporters. And I think kind of acknowledging that uh, is another way to help get the youth vote up. Yeah, no, those are just, I I really agreed with just based on my personal experiences, all of these principles. And it was interesting to hear you kind of elaborate on those. So thank you for that. So those you think when you've worked on campaigns in the past and spoken with people, those are trends you're seeing also because the opposite might be true. I might be totally wrong. Maybe issues that get people to vote, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely think that democracy is social and the political is personal are, are principles that young people involved in politics are really aware of and tapping into. Oh. The one I would say is in contention still is this idea of sustainability versus disruption. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's a big dialogue and kind of debate happening 
between young people about this idea of should we focus on sustainability and working within the system or should the idea kind of excuse my language be like let's just like like screw the shit like just yeah. blow it up like uh -huh. we just need to start over and that's really where the big tension is and where i think young people don't agree is that oh. idea of sustainability versus disruption yeah um i i'm no longer a young person i don't get to, to have an opinion on this but i will say that as a historian and this is just a question of worldview. There are other historians who will say the exact opposite, but I feel like in American history, the things that we've really achieved that have benefited us have mostly come from sustained engagement over time. That if you look at, I don't know, the social safety network, if you look at the end of slavery, if you look at, at uh, women's suffrage, if you look at all the, the successful movements across our history, it's been slow and steady hard work with, with some huge breaks you know like there are moments when suddenly when abolition goes from a movement that's going nowhere to emancipation on the ground or you know uh great depression brings about policies that just couldn't have gotten passed before so there, there are moments when you need that disruption but i think the bedrock to me is is sustainably building movements uh that's what i think works you know it doesn't sound as good but it works um sure that's, that's my view at least yeah, well, I think that historical perspective is something that it's it's hard for, you know, you're 20 years old to kind of tap into that historical perspective. All you know is the 20 years you've been around. So I, I appreciate you sharing that and that kind of uh, that that just that perspective. Yeah, I'll also say that moments of disruption can bring really bad episodes too. that when you look at the, the history in the last 200 years of revolutions going wrong, you like the greatest atrocities we have seen in Russia, China, and Germany, like come from political values that political movements that value complete disruption with the past, the Cambodia over over sustainability. So that's 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 where I'd come down. But yeah, you know, I'm I'm old and tired and, and moderate <laughs> and so that, that might not be the view of your listeners. No, no, no. You have a unique perspective as someone who studied young people from 200 years ago. So I really appreciate you kind of sharing that. And something I wanted to ask you about as well, I know your focus isn't on modern politics, mm -hmm. but uh, today, I think, uh, again, from my personal experience and the people I talk to, it seems like those fringe campaigns are the ones that are most attractive to young folks. So I know a lot of young people are attracted to kind of the democratic socialists or they're attracted to the Trump types, just kind of the, the extremes. Was that, is that true 200 uh, years ago? That's a great question. Um, there are fringe, a lot of fringe movements in the 19th century that are driven by young people for good and for bad. Um, the know nothings are, which is anti-immigrant movement was predominantly young people. Um, the new Republican Party is kind of young, um, but then there are other things, not fringe movements, but small parties that are seen as kind of conservative and regressive and appealing to a, a past era that has been and, and a bygone era, you know? Um, I think that's a great question, and I don't have a good answer for you. That's okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that for a while and get back to you. Yeah, don't worry about it. I just, I was really curious if that's something like by being young, you're more attracted to these things, or if it's just a modern phenomenon where like young people just uh -huh. are more interested in these outside of the norm movements. I don't know. I think, I think you can say that third parties in American history have had a lot of momentum with young people. And I don't know if that's because young people are 
more easily excited by these movements and inherently more kind of radical, I don't mean left, but like more willing to make big change. That's probably just psychologically true, but it's also kind of structurally true that if you're 18 or 21 and you want to get involved in politics and you look at the, the big Democratic and Republican parties, you have this huge ladder of hierarchies before you can have any voice, right? Like you're going to put in years and years and years of labor, anonymous labor, before you're of any significance, kind of, because they're, they're the, in the 19th century America, they're the biggest institutions in society. And today they're big and kind of distant. Um, if you join the third party, if you're a populist or a know nothing or a greenbacker or whatever, the hierarchy is a lot shorter. Like you can have a voice and have an influence a lot quicker as a young person. So sometimes just structurally, it's easier to get involved in a new movement because you can be at the top of that movement pretty quickly. You don't kind of have to put in your dues of decades of service. Yeah, no, be. that's, thank you for that answer. I know, again, it's like, uh, I, I know that maybe it's not easy to answer that. Um, and kind of the other thing I'm thinking about with that question is candidates who are kind of the the like cult of personality type candidates. So one wow. I'm thinking of, and this is a little past where I think your book covers, but like Huey Long in Louisiana, yeah. uh -huh. like those interesting characters in history, I wonder if they were more interesting or appealing to young folks, or if that is something that wouldn't be backed by, by, by evidence. I, I just don't know. I think it's true that people who are outside the establishment because every vote reinforces your commitment to your party and your worldview, every time you voted standard establishment, Democrat or standard establishment, Republican, you're less likely to wiggle, right? So it's easier for new voters to take a risk and vote for these kind of outlying candidates and exciting candidates. The one thing that doesn't correlate is that young people do not support young candidates more than older people. That, you know, some of the candidates that had a lot of youth support, like Teddy Roosevelt, were really young. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, has had tons of youth support, and he's on the older end of the spectrum. Uh, and you can give lots of examples either way. It's not like young, young people rarely, I don't want to say young people are less selfish because we're all selfish, but young people rarely just want to elect young people. Right. No, that's definitely something that I'm noticing today is there's, there's no sort of kind of united youth movement happening. Yeah. Um, so you, I think you are right that young people are more... Um, disrupted and less establishment that they are willing to take risks that that older people aren't yeah no that's definitely true um something I, I wanted to ask to kind of start wrapping up the interview um is so our audience is 91 percent folks who are between the age of 18 and 29 years old that's great um so with that in mind, and with the historical perspective that you have, is there anything that you would want to say to that audience of 18 to 29 year olds who are obviously interested in politics, if they're listening to this, kind of with all of the perspective that you have and, 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 and your work that you've done? Well, I don't, I'm not a very inspirational guy, but I'll say, sure. I'd say you're you're already doing a good job and you have precedent to do even more that like like i said earlier millennials and gen z are more active and engaged than gen xers or baby boomers were so the idea that young people just don't care today is is just just measurably wrong right like young people are really i think doing a wonderful job caring about the issues guiding the conversation so i think we should be really proud of proud of the youth um but there's also precedent for young people to play really active roles in politics uh more so than we see today. So I just, um, 
study that history and draw from it, I guess. I don't know. I, I can't tell people what to do, but I do I sure. do know there's this precedent and there's these kind of ancestors and this there's this history. And that shows to me that there's more room wiggle room in our democracy than we think there is. That we we kind of have a standard map for how people get engaged and how people participate. But this forgotten history of the youth vote says to me, our democracy can be used in vastly different ways and has been over over our history with basically the same constitution, huge changes in how we, the role of politics in our life, the role of the people in politics, there's a lot of room for change. And I, I, I hope this generation uses that wiggle room to make positive change. And you said you weren't inspirational. <laughs> That's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, well, thank you so much, Dr. Grinspan. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I am super excited for people to be able to listen to this interview. So thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you for talking about this stuff. I love this stuff. And it sounds like you're doing really good work and reaching, reaching exactly the right people. With that, I want to say thank you so much to Dr. Grinspan for talking with me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next time for another great episode. The Youth Vote is hosted by me, Isaac Mitchell, produced and edited by Jamie Hobbs, with cover art from Cole Callahan, intro and outro music by Ennio Gallucci, and social media management by Bridget Junker.